And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 this, this afternoon. Luke chapter 9. So if you have an electronic device that has a Bible on it or a, a Bible with you, Luke 9. If not, it's cool. Just follow along with us. So I'm going to read just the first two verses of Luke chapter 9. And then I'm going to uh, pray again. And Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority uh, over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And Father, we pray you bless our time in your word in Jesus' name. So uh, the first intern we had, at, in fact, actually the first convert we had at Servant Church was a young man named JP. And JP, I didn't ask your permission to share the story, so if you're watching, forgive me. But JP is, was a very, is a very, very clever bloke. In fact, when I met JP, uh, he was just kind of thinking about uh, the faith, what it meant to be a Jesus follower. Uh, he had got a first in his master's degree in engineering and was hired quickly to do engineering and found out once he started to do engineering, he didn't actually know how to do engineering. And he learned really quick that you can have a lot of knowledge but not actually know how to do something. Because there's something about actually doing what you know that shows that you actually know something. And one of the things about Christianity that we have to understand, especially uh, in a church like ours that, that really emphasizes Bible teaching, it's easy for us to think that being a Christian is just having certain kinds of knowledge, that it's about information. But actually, being a Jesus follower is about transformation. It's about the, the creator of the universe who took on, the, the, took on human flesh, walked and lived a perfect life, died for us on a cross, rose from the dead to begin to bring that change, that transformation to this world. And it starts by working on us as individuals, changing us from the inside out. And so as we've been going through Luke's gospel, we've seen how... Jesus handpicked these 12 guys, not the guys that you would think he'd pick to, to be leaders for a worldwide movement, but he picks these 12 guys, simple, basic, normal guys, radically diverse guys, and he begins to really invest in them. He calls them to follow him. And if you were with us a, a, a week ago or a couple weeks ago, when we were in chapter 8, we saw that Jesus wanted to, to demonstrate, in fact, he often demonstrated that he could exercise God's authority in God's world. We saw that he had power over creation, over nature. We saw that he had authority and power over evil spirits. We saw that he had authority and power over death and disease. And so as he shows that he has all this power to the disciples to the world, they're seeing, okay, who else could this be but God's chosen king? That's what Christ means, is God's chosen king. Who else could it be but that who's doing these things? And then when we pick it up in chapter 9, we see after he shows this, that he has God's authority in God's world, that he actually calls these 12 guys that he's been invested in, and he gives them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, and he sends them out. Now, when we get to chapter 10 in a couple weeks, we'll talk more about what is meant by this power and authority, how Jesus gave this to them, why that's important for us to understand. That, that we'll, we'll take care of that more when we get to chapter 10, because... We see this happening in another way as well.
But it's important for us today to, to recognize that what Jesus is doing is he's taking these 12 men who do know more about him than most of the crowds. But they still don't know very much. And he's taking these 12 men and he's calling them to do things even when they don't fully understand things. And the reason for that is he doesn't want, to, he doesn't want them to end up like my friend JT who had a lot of knowledge, but didn't actually know what it meant to walk. So, so here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see three ways that, the, that Jesus used the disciples and taught them to learn as they go. The first is we see here in these first few verses where Jesus gives them this authority to what it says to proclaim the kingdom of God. And if you drop down to verse 6, it says, and they departed, that's the disciples, they departed and they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now, now, for those of us who, who've been around church for a while and uh, we have been following Jesus for a while, when we hear they preach the gospel, we think they told people that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. But guess what? When he sent them out to preach the gospel, he had not yet died for their sins or rose from the dead. So what were they preaching? When they were proclaiming the kingdom, what were they proclaiming? Well, the idea is they were proclaiming this idea, this, this truth, that all the, the, the Old Testament Christians or Old Testament saints knew, all the, the, those of Israel knew, that God had promised to one day send his chosen king, and when he sends his chosen king, he would bring his kingdom on earth. Remember the Lord's Prayer? We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's the idea that, God, you rule over all, and we want you to rule specifically here. That's, that's what the idea is. And so when they're going out to preach, they're going out to preach and kind of proclaim and even demonstrate, this is why he gives them this authority over demons and, and this authority over, uh, over illnesses. Because as they're doing this, listen, they're demonstrating and proclaiming the goodness of God's kingdom to anyone who will listen. Now, specifically, they're going into villages that were mostly Christians. And, and, and when he has them go out, he gives them some specific instructions. If you look at verse 3. It says, Jesus said to them, take nothing for your journey, nor no staff, nor bag, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two, two, two tunics. In other words, don't even take a change of clothing. Now, now, when he says, don't even take two changes of clothing, he even says this in verse 4, notice, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Now, now here's what he's talking about, Okay. What he's talking about is, is he's saying, listen, when you go out, we, I don't want you to take a bunch of stuff. I don't want you to, to provide for yourself. I want you to do what, what normally sort of Jewish rabbis would do when they'd go out and kind of circuit preach. They'd go out and they'd see if anybody wanted to hear what they had to say. And if they did in that culture, they would say, okay, come stay in our house and we'll feed you and we'll, uh, we'll give you a place to stay until your ministry here is done. And what he's trying to teach them as they do this is to rely on God's provision. He wants his disciples to trust God to provide their needs. Now, the reason he says go into one house and stay there is because you might be tempted, if, you're, if your needs are going to be met by one uh, household in a village, you might be tempted to go, what's the biggest, nicest house? Where do I smell barbecue? Let's go in that one and knock on the door and see if we can stay there. But Jesus says, no, 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 don't do that. You go to whatever house, whatever family is willing to welcome you, you stay there and you do ministry. Learn to rely on God's provision. But then he says this thing in verse 5 that is kind of strange to us. And it, it's even off-putting when you understand what, what he says. Look what he says, verse 5. 
And wherever that they do not receive you, Jesus says, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, again, this is something that a lot of the very pious Jews would do, especially the religious leaders. If they were going through a village of non-Jewish people, they felt like they could get defiled by this. And so as they walked through, they would literally shake the dust off their feet to kind of say, look, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want any of your corruption on me. And it was also kind of a way to say to those people, you're not right with God, even though we're right with God. Now, this is what the Jews would do. So when Jesus tells his disciples that you're going, whoa, that's, that seems a bit harsh. That doesn't seem like the Jesus that I thought I knew, the Jesus that was always like, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He did say that. So what is this going on? Why is he doing this with his disciples? Now, keep in mind, at this point, they, don't, they haven't even heard yet that he's going to die. He hasn't really even hinted at that yet. They haven't heard about his resurrection. They haven't heard about any of those sufferings. All they know is this Jesus taught like nobody else, and this Jesus could do miracles that nobody else could do. And they were thinking, this guy's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be God's chosen king. All they know about the kingdom is that the kingdom is when God reigns through his chosen king, and it's when everything finally is the way it should be, when we all have the world that we all want. That's all they knew. And for them, as these Jewish men, these were all Jewish men who saw Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, for them, they're thinking, okay, that makes sense. If they won't receive you, then that's it. But he was also wanting them to, to understand this. He's wanting them to learn that when people reject the good news, the gospel, which he will expand more throughout the whole gospel of Luke to, to, to be centered on him and his suffering. But when people reject the gospel, it leaves them under judgment. It leaves them in a place where they're guilty. Now, this is hard to understand, but it's important to get our head around. Jesus said something similar in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a real religious uh, leader, one of the highest religious leaders in all of Israel. And in that famous verse, John three sixteen, many of us have heard this, for God so loves the world, for love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's John three sixteen. Well, John three seventeen and 19 says this. Notice, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He's not looking to, to condemn it and throw it out. But in order that the world might be saved through him, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but notice, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, here's what Jesus says. This is the, this is the view that Jesus had of the world. This is the, Jew, the view that Jesus has uh, of the world. This is something that even... Uh, all the Jews before him would have thought that this world is broken. And because this world is broken, God has to provide a way for it to be fixed. But what the Jews didn't understand was they were just as broken as the rest of the world. That all of us, every single one of us, is broken. Our planet is broken. We continue to make it uh, even more broken. But Jesus comes to bring wholeness, salvation. He comes to redeem and restore but here's the catch. He says, listen, that only can happen through me. So that if we reject the only way that God's going to restore this world, what are we left with? The brokenness, the corruption, the judgment. 
And so, so what he's wanting to do is, even though these guys didn't fully understand this message of the kingdom, they didn't, they didn't know yet what Jesus was going to do. That's going to come up later in the section. But, but they didn't know that. But they still went out and said what they knew. He called them to proclaim a message they didn't yet fully understand. Now, we'll come back to verses 7 to 9 in a second. But drop down to verse 10. Really famous story. Everyone's probably heard this. When Jesus feeds the 5,000. Look at verse 10. Now, on their return, the apostles told him all they had done. In other words, they, they, they went out, they preached the gospel, they did the miracles. What happens? Uh, he told them, they, they told him all that he had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed Jesus. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, we know from uh, another gospel, we know from Mark's gospel, that Jesus was actually calling these guys away to kind of like have a little short break, a retreat. In fact, we read this in Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Jesus said to them, this is the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So they were so busy, they were having a hard time getting a meal in. These guys had done some serious ministry and he's saying, you know, you need a break. Come and rest a while. But as they come and rest, what happens? Instead of a time of rest, they, they tend to be involved in more ministry. And I know exactly what this is like, I have to say. Um, my wife and I have been here for uh, 17 years almost, and we were going to take a three-month sabbatical back in January. Or actually, it was scheduled for March of 2020. And so we had made these plans. We really needed this time off. We were longing for a break. And so we get everything prepared, everybody's ready for us to be gone for three months, and some little pandemic happened. <laughs> and so after two and a half weeks of sabbatical, we had to come back uh, to, to do ministry. Now, God did some great stuff in my heart in those two and a half weeks, so I'm not complaining. It was, it was really great, and I was really thankful for that time. And it's been a really difficult year for all of us, but it's still been a fruitful year, and I'm thankful. But the point is, sometimes this is what happens to us, that, that even when we feel like, I just... I'm too tired to move on anymore. I'm too tired to do good towards anyone anymore. And often God will say, this is what I still want you to do. I'm still calling you to meet some needs. So what were the needs that they're going to meet? Look at verse 12. Now the day began to wear away, and the 12 came, and they said to Jesus, send the crowds away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes. Think sardines, okay? And unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men, plus women and children, you could assume. So I want you to think about this, okay? These guys are exhausted from doing this crazy supernatural stuff they never expected to do. They're excited about God's kingdom, but they're exhausted. And then what happens? More crowds, more needs to be met. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Instead of dismissing the crowds, they're called to feed them. So what do they do? Look at verse 14 again, the second part of verse 14. And Jesus said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and have them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. 
And they all ate, that is all 5,000 men plus women and children, they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, here's what's amazing. We, we don't know if Jesus did the miracle. In, we don't know if the, 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 the bread and fish was kind of multiplied miraculously as Jesus broke it and stuck it in the baskets that they passed out. We don't know if it, as he, he put two little scraps in the baskets, they're going, what are we going to do with this? And then he sends them and reaches in the basket and there's still plenty to, get, to go. We don't, we don't know how it took place, but there is definitely a miracle that took place. And I want to be clear about this because there's no reason whatsoever in any of the scripture we shouldn't see this except for what it is, face value, a miracle. But what's amazing about this, too, to, to me, is that here's these 12 disciples who are obedient to do something that sounds nuts that Jesus wants them to do. 12 disciples who are exhausted. But when they do that, how many baskets of food are left over? 12. How much food did they have when they started? Actually, we know from the this other Gospels, they had none. These five loaves and two fish were actually some small boy's lunch feel bad for the kid that shook it down. Give us your food, kid, you know? <laughs> but Jesus took it and he multiplies it. That kid was fuller than he would have been, as was everyone else. Now, here's interesting. Here's the interesting thing. If you go to, to, to Rome <coughs> or, or other places where they actually have catacombs, these, these kind of underground caverns and, and burial places where Christians had to meet when they were under persecution, they would hide in these places so they could have they could still worship Jesus, and in doing so, sometimes they would they would draw or 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 sketch or carve into the walls different images. Do you know the image that they carved most? It wasn't a cross. You would think it'd be a cross, as important as the cross is, the most important thing. But it wasn't a cross. It was loaves and fishes. When they would do mo mosaics with with tile, pieces of broken tile, loaves and fishes. Why? Because the, the first Jesus followers understood, even in the midst of being totally persecuted, they understood that God didn't just say, hey, come and believe some stuff. Make some sort of intellectual assent to some facts. It was that, but it was way more than that. It was that the, the creator of the universe had come down as a man and said, come and be changed. Follow me and, and, and begin to experience the restoration that God wants to bring to the whole world. And they would think to themselves, how is that going to be? How can we be changed? How can we do this work that Jesus has called us to do? It's way beyond us. Oh, yeah, loaves and fishes. Oh, yeah, the Lord can take the little we have and bless it and multiply it and meet many needs. Now, I want to be clear, too. I'm not talking about the kind of stuff you see on religious television, like give me your 10 pounds and you will get 100 pounds back. We don't believe in that. What I am talking about, though, is when we say, Lord, this is all I have, and I want you to use this to change me and to change others, God multiplies that, and you do end up with more than you started with. See, they met needs beyond their ability. Interesting, uh, there was a man named Saul in Tar from Tarsus, and Saul was a very religious Jew, and Saul was so committed to the Jewish idea of God that he could not believe in Jesus, and so he hated Jesus, and he hated Jesus' followers. This is after Jesus has died and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. So Saul persecuted Christians. He had them arrested. Sometimes he had them murdered. Saul hated Christians, and then Jesus got a hold of his life and radically changed him, and he became Paul, as in Saint Paul. And when Paul listened, 
was doing his ministry specifically to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. He's doing his, mini- his ministry specifically in an area called Corinth. That these people did not appreciate Paul. They would say things like, yeah, the letters he writes, they're, they have a lot of substance. They're pretty weighty, but have you heard the guy preach? So boring. Horrible. Not a very impressive looking guy either. So they didn't like him. In fact, Paul, even though Paul had made so many sacrifices to, to help these people follow Jesus, he even said at one point, man, the more I love you guys, the less I'm loved. But here's the thing. Paul, Paul also wanted these guys to recognize, yes, I have a lot of weaknesses, but that's what makes the power that you see coming through my life, through this message, even more about Jesus. And so he writes this, listen to this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. But the Lord said to Paul, this is when Paul's praying to the Lord saying, please take away my weakness. But the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with the weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong see Paul understood what at this point in Luke's gospel the disciples are just learning he understood was it's not about my strength it's not about my resources it's about his it's about what the Lord can do when I say Lord take my life it's yours it's about that now, it's important that we're seeing that the, the main thing that we're seeing here. In fact, Luke's gospel actually puts these, these different stories together, this, these different uh, parts uh, of Jesus feeding the 5,000, calling the 12 and sending them out, and even what we're about to read now. He puts these in a slightly different way than the other gospel writers because he wants us to see something really important here. He wants us to see that these disciples had to learn as they went. They didn't just kind of know everything and then thought, okay, now I know everything, I'll do something now. No, like the rest of us, they learned on the job. They had, they were, they had a basic knowledge because they grew up as Jews, Hebrews. They went to Hebrew school. They knew all the Old Testament stories. They expected God to send his chosen king. They, they began to listen to him preach, watch what he did, do what he said. But when he sends them out, they really begin to learn, wow, there's something that God's doing here that we don't fully understand that they had to learn as they go. Now, as, as Jesus does this, okay, we, we see now in verse 18 that Jesus is going to begin to change his focus. This is where in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus begins to tell his disciples about his own crucifixion, his own suffering that's coming up. It says, now, as Jesus was praying alone, verse 18, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? This, this connects back to what uh, I want you to see in, in uh, verses 7 to 9. Look at verse 7 to 9. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch, that would be, Herod would be kind of like the, the leader over this area of Palestine under Roman authority, okay? Luke gets that name right. Tetrarch is the official title. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. 
Now, the reason Luke tells us this little bit of information is, if you guys remember back, Herod, this leader, he had an unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. Kind of had his brother killed and took his wife. And so John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, preached against him and said, dude, you're wrong. You shouldn't have, been, you shouldn't have done that. You were wrong. And then what, is, what does a guy with all this power do when someone tells him he's wrong? Throws the dude in jail. So he throws John the Baptist in jail. And while John's in jail, of course, you guys probably know the story. John's in jail, and, and uh, Herod's wife doesn't like the fact that uh, Herod's been called out. So she tricks Herod into beheading John, cuts off John's head. Now, John's feeling a bit, or Herod's feeling a bit guilty about this. And so when he hears about this miracle worker, this person who's preaching, uh, this, this calling people to turn back to God, the same way John called people to turn back to God, he's going, is this John the Baptist risen from the dead? He's probably got a little bit of superstition here, kind of afraid. Because, you know, if you killed somebody and they came back from the dead, you ought to be afraid. I mean, let's be honest, okay? It's kind of scary. It's like Night of Living Dead kind of thing. And so you, you don't want this. So he's, he's kind of freaked out. But the reason also is so that we can see that this king, this powerful king, this knowledgeable king, had some of the same kind of wrong ideas about who Jesus was as the crowds. So go back to verse then 19. Peter had, of course, asked, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus had asked the disciples, who do the crowd say they am? And here's how they answered, okay? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets of old has risen. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you, talking to them as a group, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for all of them when he says, the Christ of God. Christ is a title that means basically God's chosen king. So they're seeing that he's God's chosen king. This is important because the, the, the reality here is as he's calling them to learn as they go, it, it isn't just about information. It is about transformation, but they can't be transformed unless they can rightly recognize the person who does the transformation. It's God's chosen king. They have to recognize Jesus as God's chosen king, and they do. So what does Jesus say to them? Oh, you got it. Good. Go tell everybody. No, look at verse 21. Weird. Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Right answer. Don't tell anybody. But this is why. This is why. Look at verse 22. Saying the Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking of himself. It's a, it's a title, another title for God's chosen king. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. That means the religious rulers. And be killed, and on the third day be raised. So what does Jesus do? He's already shown he has God's authority and God's will that can do all the things that only God should be able to do. He's shown himself to be the Son of God. He's definitely shown himself to be God's chosen king. And then when he begins to get it, okay, you're God's chosen king, because you got it right. But I don't want you to say anything about this, because... First, what has to happen is I need to be rejected and I need to be killed. I need to rise from the dead on the third day. The key word here in verse 22 is the word must. Jesus is not saying, hey, this is just going to happen. He is making a prediction about how he's going to suffer. It gets more detailed too as we'll go through the gospel. He is making a prediction about how he's going to suffer specifically, the kind of death he's going to die, who, by whose, whom's, whose hands he's going to die, and even predicting the same resurrection. You might be able to predict your own death, but you can't really predict your own resurrection, can you? 
But it's not just that. It's not just the fact that he's doing it. He's saying, this is what has to happen. This is what has to happen. If the world that's broken is going to be redeemed, transformed, then what's going to have to happen is I must be rejected. I must be crucified. I must be resurrected. Now remember back in the beginning of the chapter where the disciples shook the dust off your feet off their feet. Remember that? And it was a way to show the towns, it was a way to show those villages, look, if you're going to reject the gospel, then God's saying that you're already rejected. One of the reasons Jesus is doing that and then saying this now is to say, okay, you guys understand how painful rejection was? Guess what? I'm going to be fully rejected. Now don't forget, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's like, he's a celebrity, man. Everybody, Herod wants to see what this guy's about. Everybody wants to know who Jesus is. Everybody wants his time. Everybody wants to see him do his miracles. Everybody wants to hear him teach. He's like the celebrity of the day. He's the preacher of the day. But guess what he's saying? But that's not why I came. I didn't come to be a celebrity. I came to die and to rise from the dead. Now, it's important that we understand this because Jesus is calling these disciples, as he's calling us, to a lifestyle of discipleship. He's not just calling them to commit their Sunday mornings, or in their case, their Friday nights. He's not just calling them to, to you know, give up a couple of the years of their life to kind of go around and learn from him in Jesus' Bible college. What he's calling them to do is to live their whole lives for him. And that begins with recognizing Jesus as God's chosen king and accepting the necessity of Jesus' death. He had to die. I want you to think about this for a second before we, we go forward. These guys fully didn't understand this, but it's important for us, this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, to understand this. It wasn't just the fact that Jesus was killed unjustly. He was. The scripture is very, very clear that he was completely innocent. He was unjustly killed. Even his disciples would preach that to the Jews. They'd say, you unjustly killed the just one. But they also acknowledged, but this was God's plan. You see, see it, it, it kind of works like this. If, if you sin against me, if you offend me, if you do something against me, if I'm going to forgive you, I have to kind of absorb that offense, don't I? And sometimes it's easy. If you accidentally step on my foot, I can say, that's okay, I, no problem, I, I forgive you, no problem. If you were speaking bad about me and you didn't know I was there and I walked up and I, and I hear that, oh, you're such a funny-looking bald man, <laughs> and I hear that, right? I can, I can handle that. I've been giving bald jokes for a long time. <laughs> I can handle that. I can absorb that. I can forgive you. If you hurt one of my children, it's a little harder. I don't know if I can absorb that. We, we have a sense that just forgiving everyone isn't so easy when the offense is great. And what the Bible teaches is that this world is broken because of the choices we make. We choose to ignore God or replace God with whatever idea fits us best. And the consequence is destruction. It, it just ruins everyone. It destroys relationships. It destroys the environment. It, it destroys hope. It confuses everyone about truth. It's just a disaster, and it's an offense to God. And so when Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer, in other words, 
He is coming as God's chosen king. He's coming as God's only son. He is the final word that God wants to speak to humanity. This is me, God is saying. This is me. This is what I'm like. You can trust me. You must trust me. But he's saying, this is only going to work if they see how bad it is when they reject me and crucify me. He must suffer. Now, this, this might be mind-blowing to you. If you're listening to this, you might think, man, this Christian stuff is new to me. I, I've not really heard this stuff before. But this was going to be mind-blowing to these Jewish men who were following Jesus as their dearest Messiah. This was mind-blowing to them. What? The Messiah suffering? What? And Jesus didn't say it's going to happen. He says it must happen. If we're going to follow him, we have to accept the necessity of Jesus' death. And then lastly, look at verse 23. Then it says, and he said to all. That doesn't just mean all the 12. This would be anyone who was around listening. Because this applies to anybody back then and, and now who thinks they want to maybe follow after Jesus. Notice he says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now imagine how weird this would sound before Jesus was crucified. We kind of go, okay, it's got something to do with him dying too. I, I'm not sure what, but yeah, okay. But it would be like if, if I said to you, you know, if you said, hey, I really like the church, I'd like to become a member. What do I need to do a member? Okay, if you want to be a member, what you need to do is you need to put an electric chair around your neck and carry it everywhere you go. And if anybody makes fun of you, say, I'm willing to go to this if I have to. You'd be going, whoa, that's a bit of intense. Maybe I don't want to join this church. But Jesus is being intense because <laughs> he's doing something radical. It takes something radical, listen, to transform the world, to bring it back the way it should be. Now, now it's important we also understand when he says, let him deny himself. There's a scripture where Jesus said, if someone denies me before men, I will deny them before the Father. And the idea is if someone says, doesn't just say that Jesus doesn't exist, because to be honest, really hardly anybody says Jesus didn't exist. There are a few people that still want to hold on to like, there's no evidence for Jesus, but these people are not, no offense, but they're not educated people. Historians, whether they believe in God or not, will tell you there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth. It's one of the most historically uh, verifiable facts there is. Doesn't mean they believe that he's God, doesn't mean they believe he rose from the dead, but they would say, yes, he lived, he taught, he died. That, that's pretty historically verifiable, pretty clear. Without using the Bible is what I mean. So, so denying Jesus, when he says, if you deny me before men, he's not saying, I don't believe he existed. It means, I don't believe he is who he said he was. I don't believe what Jesus says about himself. I don't believe what Jesus says about me. I don't believe what Jesus says about him having a right to, to rule over all, or that that's a good idea. It's to deny any allegiance to him. This is, the reason this is important is because going back to verse 23, when Jesus says to anyone who wants to follow him, they need to deny, let him deny himself. It's saying, you need to deny your allegiance to yourself. Now, if you know the Old Testament story of, of Adam and Eve way back in Genesis, in the very beginning of the scriptures, God makes Adam and Eve, they're in this perfect garden, they have everything they need to enjoy God and to flourish as human beings, as the first human beings. And all God says to them, in fact, God says this to them for their flourishing, he says, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for that tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
nothing necessarily different about that tree. It was just for them to flourish, for them to grow as human beings, there had to be a choice made about their allegiance to God. <laughs> if you're in a perfect environment, how do you prove that you actually want to know and love your creator? Well, you have a choice. And the choice is, if he says, that, don't eat that one, then you can eat that one. But along comes the serpent, slithering up, and tells Eve, he says, Eve, Eve, you know, God, he's probably holding back on you. Because it's the knowledge of, of good and evil. You know what? If you eat it, you're going to be wise like God, and he doesn't want any competition. Now, why don't you go and do it? Because, man, don't you want to be like God? And so Eve says, okay. She's deceived. And Adam, like most men, says, huh? Not paying attention. And so they disobey God. And ever since then, they and every one of us as human beings has had this bent towards doing the same thing. We don't want to do what God wants us to do. I want to be like God. So when God sends his king and says, okay, here's how you have to follow me. If you're going to follow me, you have to deny your natural bent to be an have an allegiance to yourself, exalting yourself as the highest authority. You know what's interesting about this? Jesus says this, of course, 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years ago, people didn't necessarily see them as individuals as the highest authority. They would see the king as a high authority, maybe a priest as a high authority, maybe the oldest male in the family as the high authority. They didn't see themselves as individuals, yet Jesus called them to say, listen, this is still your bent to do what is what you think will keep you in control, and you have to let that go. And if we're honest, isn't that the way we are now? The authority that we see as extreme is not the government. We, gosh, I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> politics, man. It, it's like a great game. I, I was listening to Radio 4, and they were saying that, that the, the, whole, the whole kind of theme of British politics is to whinge about whoever's in charge. I think that's true. It's like, this is how we prove we, we're, we like democracy. We whinge about whoever's in charge. We think no one knows better than us. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If you're going to follow me, you're going to have to let that go. You're going to have to daily deny your self-allegiance if you're going to follow Jesus. This is heavy, isn't it? It's a big deal, isn't it? It's especially a big deal when you think about that these guys who have been following Jesus had no clue what he meant by he was going to be rejected, crucified, and rose from the dead. They were probably going, man, what are you on about? What does this mean? We, we, we have to trust you, Jesus, because no one can do what you do. No one can speak the way you speak. And no one is so quick to forgive the way you are. We've got to trust you, but this is heavy. And then Jesus gives these words that sound even heavier to us. But listen, these are meant to be words of encouragement. Follow, follow this. Listen, verse 24 and 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It doesn't sound very encouraging to me, John, but no, it is. This is, okay, remember, this is the, the creator of the universe, the one who's made you and me and everything else in the universe, who's now taken on, taken on man, and he's given us his eternal wisdom, and he's saying, listen, you've got to understand, if you seek to find your life, to make your own life, to be your own God, guaranteed you're going to lose it. But if you are willing to let go of your life and say, you know, Jesus, you rule, you know what's best, I'm going to follow you and do what you want me to do, 
you're going to actually find it. I mean, does it make any sense to, to, to gain everything and then lose yourself? Does that make any sense? You've heard the parable that Jesus told about the, the, the man who, who was a very wealthy and, and successful businessman, and he thought, man, I'm doing so good. I'm going to build bigger barns, fill them up, and then take my ease. And then what happens? God says, you fool. Today your soul's required of you. I mean, how many times have you heard of guys who work hard their entire lives to retire well, and then they pass away before they get a chance to enjoy it? It's, it's grievous. But this is life in our broken world. And Jesus is saying, I have something better for you. I have something bigger for you. Something you will learn as you walk. The same Paul who talked about his weakness and gloried in them, he wrote this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage that I could gain Christ. All that God has created, all that God has done through Christ, all of it has been to give us the greatest thing God can give us. You know what that is? Himself. Himself. The reason we're so unsatisfied with our lives, the reason we so struggle to make sense of our life is because we're always looking for something else that we can deify. We can worship instead of God. Instead of knowing the God who made us. So let me ask all of you a question. Those of you who are watching at home as well, let me ask you this question. Do you recognize Jesus for who he is? Would you say with Peter and the other disciples, he's God's chosen king? And are you willing to follow him as he's requiring? Are you willing to say, Lord, I, I'm not going to control my life anymore. I want to learn to let you be Lord of my life. Because if that's you, that's what, that's, that, that is what it means to be a Jesus follower. I want to ask you guys to do something. Th these, these disciples, okay, they were sent out to preach the King of God, and they didn't know as much as most of you who are watching this know about the King of God. But they did it. And in doing it, they grew in their faith. They learned to trust the Lord more. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to ask God, God, sh send someone my way that I can show and tell about your goodness, about how good it is to be under your rule in my life. If you, if you <coughs> are a Jesus follower and you believe that, pray that this week and see who the Lord might bring your way. So, so, so thankful that you guys could join us online. So thankful you guys came today. Um, I'm going to close this in prayer. Bless you. Hope to see uh, you guys all next week. Father, thank you for your love for us. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow us. Help us to, to know you more as we simply just walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.